The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of Natural Bridges Media or KSQD's staff, volunteers, or underwriters. KSQD thanks Sustainable Systems Research Foundation for supporting sustainability now. SSRF provides education, research, and advocacy for regional environmental quality and sustainability-related problems and solutions. For information, visit SustainableSystemsFoundation.org. And thank you, SSRF, for supporting community radio. K-Squid, 90.7 F. In the year 2525, if man is still alive, if woman can survive, they may Good evening, Santa Cruz. It's every other Sunday again, and this is Ronnie Lipschitz. You're listening to Sustainability Now, a radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. Today, my guest is Kim Stanley Robinson, well-known as author of many science fiction classics, such such as the Three Californias trilogy, which includes my favorite book, Pacific Edge, and the Mars trilogy. His recent work, such as New York 2140, has addressed environmental and climate issues. His forthcoming book, The Ministry for the Future, imagines a new global organization that advocates for the world's future generations and protects all living creatures, present and future. I have a lot of questions for you, but since we only have about 50 minutes, I'll try to exercise some self-control. So far, 2020 has been a bummer, an honest horribilis. There are few indications that things are going to get any better, and they may get w- well get worse, uh, as in Robert Heinlein's Year of the Jackpot. So let's start with COVID. The, the story of plague has been fictionalized many times in Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, Mary Shelley's Last Man, Jack London's Red Plague, George Stewart's The Earth Abides, uh, on and on and on. But I'm not aware whether that anyone has imagined how absurdist the real thing has been, has turned out to be. Uh, And I was sort of thinking maybe we're in the novel that Samuel Beckett never wrote. So, I mean, why do you think that's the case? And are you willing to speculate on what comes next? Um, Sure. I can always try with the um, proviso in advance that, I don't know more than anybody else and that being a science fiction writer doesn't give you any special powers to predict the future. So um, with that in mind, I'm just going to say that um, people like to congregate and the economy relies on uh, consumption in America anyway. So there will be enormous pressures to get back to some version of normal. And as soon as people feel safe enough for that, and by people, I mean both um, the general populace and uh, the kind of uh, combination of scientists and governmental workers that are um, uh, trying to guide us through this pandemic, when there's some comfort, we will see a lot of erasure going on, a lot of uh, attempting to box 2020 into a a particular uh, peculiar zone that is 
no longer relevant to the back to normal future. I don't think that's going to work. I think it's probably made some um, fundamental changes in the way people are thinking and how they're willing to think about the present and the future. So I think that um, even when we start congregating again, even when the economy starts to go back to normal, there's going to be different expectations and habits that have been established this year. And it will hopefully make us better at dealing with climate change that people will now believe it when, when somebody says, look, the, there are going to be events happening in the future. that are simply going to hammer civilization in ways that aren't easy to cope with. People will be able to think back to 2020 and they'll have some experiences that will make it easier to imagine that bad future Then hopefully we'll do a better job of avoiding the worst of it. So this is my, this is what I sort of uh, expect or, and or hope will happen. My question actually had to do with the absurdist aspect, right? We, we keep saying nobody could make this up. Nobody could make up what has actually happened. Um, you know, I've read any number of plague novels and none of them involve the sort of characters and the, and the um, you know, spikes. I, I mean, it's, of course, it's, it's much more like the flu influenza of, of, you know, 1918 in many ways. Um, yeah. But that's never the way in which fiction is written. Well, I would say that uh, Journal of the Plague Year by Defoe, um, because it was a historical novel and he wrote it uh, 50 years after the event, is a remarkable piece of imaginative literature in reconstructing. I think he was five years old uh, when the plague happened, or maybe that was the Great Fire. But um, They were both at the same time. Yeah, he did a damn good job. And he even captures late in Journal of the Plague Year, which everybody's rereading, and that's good because Defoe is one of the great novelists of all time. I just love his work. And he writes about people um, congregating when a week before they would have been afraid to. Uh, so people are often um, strange in their risk assessment and their risk management. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't think this has been all that absurdist. What, what is it notable about it is this. If we didn't have science and statistics and government, we wouldn't even know this plague existed. There would be people dying, but they aren't a big enough part of the population. It isn't like the, the uh, Black Death of uh, medieval Europe. Yeah. So there would be, it would be like, oh my gosh, there, there are people dying. There must be a particularly virulent flu around. But the infectiousness of this flu and its deadliness is an artifact of statistical science and medical science. Huh. So um, that accounts for some of the absurdity. And then the, uh, the absurd part of it that you're pointing out is that we have an idiot as president who doesn't believe in science and has politicized this and not acted in a responsible manner because he never has and he never will. So um, you can see countries like New Zealand or South Korea where a, a fairly rational response by a populace that's all in agreement that science is real, um, making a pretty effective and non-absurd response to a dangerous epidemic. But with Trump involved, we are uh, we got a double whammy, and mm. and mm. that's been why one of the reasons why a, a response in America has been so stupid. Well, let's turn to um, up to your writing. You know, I think of you as an environmental optimist. Um, because most of your books end on an upbeat note, 
rather than a catastrophic one. But most of the climate fiction on the market is, is dystopic and apocalyptic. So why, what makes you such an optimist, even in the face of disaster, such as you know, your, the flooded New York you depict in, in New York 2140? Well, um, op- I, um, I guess I would say it, it's optimism by will. Um, mm-hmm. th- think of Gramsci, um, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. So it's a political act. To, uh, optimistic isn't uh, maybe the right word, but hopeful or trying to portray positive futures as a deliberate provocation that it would be better to do things now to get to a positive future than it is to slack off and let things fall into negative futures. So it's a, it's a political position, in other words. And um, I would give credit to my mom in terms of the biochemical aspect of my own optimism comes from my mom. And, but I saw even in her that her cheerfulness was a, um, uh, a decision on her part as well as a biochemistry thing. And she thought it was important to be positive, um, that that was how she helped the world. And so I take that part of it from her. But Politically, I would say, let's forget about optimism or pessimism, that these are just, um, you know, bourgeois feelings, and it's not as important as history itself, that we need to do the right things. And whether you feel good or bad about it, you still have to do the right things. Well, that's what has always impressed me about about your, your writing, right, is that you don't introduce deus ex machina into the, uh, like, Ernest Kallenbach did, right, with, with uh, Ecotopia Rising, uh, with the miraculous sort of solar, solar cell that saved everyone. And that, you know, that you do incorporate politics. My, my favorite one of your books, I think, is Pacific Edge uh, in the Orange County trilogy, right, in, in which you're actually, which I see as a kind of a, a response to Ecotopia in the sense that it, it depicts pragmatic politics in the pursuit of, of a, you know, an ecological goal rather than this sort of imaginary politics. And um, you, can you say something about why you think you believe politics is more important than technology? I mean, maybe I'm projecting that, but I'm assuming that's... How no, that's yeah, that's right. Uh, but let's say uh, political economy. Um, because when you talk about politics, it's very important to always include the, the politics is, is a fight over which laws we pass and which laws we thereby agree to live by on pain of um, the state jailing you. Um, so the laws matter, but the laws set up the economic system, which is uh, a very important component of how we agree to live with each other. So I'm very interested in political economy. You could even say that um, political economy is also a technology. It's the software by which civilization runs. So I don't want to make a hard distinction between technology and politics because they are both um, technologies. They are uh, software and hardware of our civilization. And I'm really interested to uh, explore fictional futures in which we have um, designed and made law a better political economy than the one we're in. 
So I'm very interested in post-capitalism and showing what it might be like to live in that. But it's, as you point out, and you often point this out, these are uh, political fights. They aren't going to happen in deus ex machina. They're not going to happen by us inventing a better machine unless the machine that you're describing is civilization itself, a better software. So it's a legal process, and that means it's a political process, which is very depressing. You can't be optimistic about politics. It's too um, ugly and brutal. I mean, it's a constant fight, but it's not war. So these are uh, discursive battles. These are uh, fights of words and laws rather than fights of guns and knives. And so in that sense, politics is better than any alternative for making a civilization. And we're stuck with it and we'll never get out of it. So I like to think about uh, politics and about laws that would be so attractive that you would get a working majority to institute those laws. So I'm never interested in unanimity. I don't think we'll ever get that. People aren't like that. What you need is a working majority, which is what, 51%, 55%, 60%. It depends on which legal system you're, or moment you're talking about. You need to get that working majority, and then you need to steamroll the opposition. The, think of the New Deal, which did so much great stuff for America. There was intense opposition to Roosevelt and to the New Deal. Right. But because he had a working majority, uh, and things got done. And that's all you can hope for. Let's get a working majority. Let's do things. Okay, well, we need to take a break. You're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz on your radio dial and ksqd.org streaming on the internet. You're listening to Sustainability Now on KSQD in Santa Cruz. This is Ronnie Lipschitz and my guest today is science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson. We're talking about the uh, Annus Horribilis 2020 and, and about his, his writing and, and his, his prognostications for the future. Um, so uh, let's talk about, let's shift to California pasts and futures. Um, I know you're in Maine right now, but I assume your heart remains in, in California more or less. Uh, in, a, in a 2013 interview in the journal Boom, you, asked, you were asked if there's a special brand of California science fiction. Um, and, you know, the state of California is something of a mythical construct. And, and I always like to read this passage from John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. So, so bear with me while I do this. They drove through Tehachapi in the morning glow, and the sun came up behind them, and then suddenly they saw the great valley below them. Al jammed on the brake and stopped in the middle of the road and, Jesus Christ, look, he said. The vineyards, the orchards, the great flat valley, green and beautiful, the trees set in rows in the farmhouses, the distant cities, the little towns in the orchid land, orchard land, and the morning sun golden on the valley. A windmill flashed in the sun and its turning blades were, little, were like a little heliograph far away. Ruthie and Winfield looked at it and Ruthie whispered, it's California. So maybe you can start by talking about California science fiction as a genre, and then given our apparently tarnished reputation, which is of course going to be thrown at us in the coming election, do you think the mythology still holds and that California genre still exists? I do think it still exists, and maybe even more than ever, um, it, it 
began as a mythological space in a Spanish novel, but the real space was immediately beguiling to the whole world. And you got to think about it. Um, the gold rush, Hollywood, and Silicon Valley, this is like too much of a good thing. Um, the, it's, uh, California has almost been cursed in the, its um, charm for the rest of humanity. Because, you know, as a physical space, it's quite glorious. It has a wonderful climate. There's nothing to complain about. But it's not the only place on this earth that is blessed by these natural features. And yet it is California and a very significant spot in world history. And Silicon Valley has kind of sealed the deal for bringing that into the 21st century. Um, and so there's a lot of pressure on it. There's more, I mean, it's the same size as New Zealand, but it has, you know, eight times as many people. Um, it's... It, these are pressures that it's had to deal with as best it can. There was not enough water to support that population, not all up and down the state. So the water has been redistributed um, in ingenious ways. And um, the whole project has been uh, a little crazy and often seen by the rest of the world as crazy. And yet it's the fifth biggest economy on earth right now. And it's extremely multicultural. There are about 100 languages spoken in California. It's got giant um, uh, populations uh, per, by percentage of ethnic minorities of all kinds. And this multilingual, multicultural state is um, pretty damned progressive um, within the federal system. It's one of the most democratic, uh, inflected and progressive of the states. It's something to be proud of as a Californian I'm proud of California, and I've seen the changes brought by the uh, influxes of immigrants to California since I was young, and it's just been continuous, of course, my entire life, but what the waves of immigration has brought is a multicultural, like, world space into California itself. So the place is much enriched uh, compared to my childhood in Orange County, and it's something to be proud of, I think. It's, it's a social accomplishment, a, a great civilization. Now, it's hampered by being tied to um, reactionary states that are trying to drag us back into the 19th century. It's not free from the world or from capitalism, and so it's um, constrained in what it can do as a project, but given the constraints, it's been a pretty great... Um, decade or two and really all the way back to the to the, the chaotic beginnings the california project has been interesting and a kind of a working utopian project and it's always of course got its downsides its dark sides its failures but um it's taken on the whole compared to the rest of world history it's been pretty um admirable in many ways so, I mean, can you say, talk about the, the, about California science fiction, you know, you do that in the interview. And I thought that's, you know, that's a really interesting uh, sort of line of, of thought. Or well, it, to a certain extent, it's a coincidence of who has been here that got interested in science fiction. So say that California itself is, as I just said, a utopian space, a science fictional project. We're, we're going to make a future better here than has ever been before. Well, then some people have to write that down and some people are going to write it down and express skepticism that that could be possibly be achieved. 
So you get uh, Ray Bradbury, who I was born in the same town as Ray Bradbury, Waukegan, Illinois. We both came to Southern California, brought by our parents when we were young, a generational difference. But Bradbury was one of the great spirits of American science fiction, and he was a California writer, too. And then Ursula Le Guin, brought up by a Berkeley professor and, and his wife, a writer, and she is a Berkeley gal through and through, although her whole adult life, she was in Portland, Oregon. So she is also an Oregonian, but um, she would celebrate her California roots. And she's California utopia to the, um, someone to uh, admire and love. And then we have Philip K. Dick, another Berkeley. He and Le Guin were at Berkeley High School in the same years, though they didn't know each other. Mm-hmm. And he's a much uh, wilder, um, sort of the the dark underside, the unconscious, the the ways in which utopian dreams can go wrong, um, the skeptic, the 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 crazy um, wild brother that is maybe uh, in some ways the most talented of all. So these are the um, there's a lot of California science fiction writers, but these are the iconic. Um, California science fiction writers that create what you could maybe call California science fiction. What does it mean? Um, Well, uh, basically utopian, but also quite crazy, Um, beautiful, but deranged and, but interested in, in um, the idea that there could be a better, a better civilization. And that's how I'd characterize it. You know, you mentioned Ray Bradbury and I, and I've, long interpreted the Martian Chronicles as a kind of an allegory to the, uh, the decimation maybe of the West by, by, you know, the white man and capitalism, uh, that you've got this, this, you know, idealized society living there and the hucksters arrive and eventually basically destroy everything. And then of course the world goes up in flames. It's it, I, I'm not sure that that's what he intended, but it, it uh, it seems to me like a a wonderful sort of if you if you think about it that way, you know a wonderful allegory of of a particular view of of European impact, particularly on California. Yeah, I think that works really well. Um, and coming from Illinois, um, there was a, a older but equally devastating history of eradication of the Native American yeah. uh, cultures and people. So there's no escaping it in America. And Bradbury was a sensitive instrument. He was really good at thinking in metaphors and writing metaphorically. So I think that works well. Um, Fahrenheit 451, if you you actually read that very short novel, what you see is that uh, he's pegged the internet, that all he's got is a black and white TV that is about the size of our laptop here. And he's looking at that. And suddenly his characters are inside a room that is TV walled and he's interacting with uh, virtual characters that are talking to him in particular as a customer and as an object of capitalism. And it's not the burning of the books, although he's very sad about that being a, a writer and a book centric person, an intense book lover, but also the destruction of books by uh, TV and, and more than TV, the internet. Mm-hmm. He, um, intuited the internet. This is about 1950. It is yeah. one of the more as- astonishing acts of, of uh, a sheer prediction that I that I know of in science fiction. Um, 
Well, well, let's let's shift over to capitalism for for a moment. So, Frederick Jameson, who I read was um, one of your dissertation advisors, is 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 reputed, along with Slavoj Žižek, to have said it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I, what what sorts of res, what response do you have to that notion? It's become a cliche, but I like it. it's a it's a good cliche. Yeah, um, I know, I think, what Jameson and Zizek were trying to suggest, that um, our political imaginations have been radically weakened by living in capitalism to the point where it's very hard to imagine what post-capitalism would be like and what the post-capitalism human would be like, how we would feel and how we would interact with each other is imaginatively severely difficult because one thing capitalism wants to do is to convince you that it's natural, that it's the only way, that it's human nature, that it's what works, that it's never going away. And the, the fact that it creates massive inequality and wrecks the planet's biosphere is supposed to be overlooked, but now that the biosphere is breaking down, now that inequality is severe and in our face and a topic of daily conversation, it becomes easier to imagine the end of the world, for sure. It'll be like the pandemic plus a fire, plus an earthquake, plus a food scare, plus a heat wave. And that's easy to imagine because we're kind of on the trajectory towards all those things happening in, in devastating ways. Now, what about imagining a post-capitalist political economy where uh, people cooperate, people are paid a good living to do the necessary work for restoring the biosphere. Um, there's general equality, there's uh, limits on uh, personal wealth, and there's also a floor that limits personal poverty. I don't think that's hard to imagine either. And I think Jameson's point is um, not that it's hard to imagine a better society. It's hard to imagine how we get there. Right. That's, that's the, the tough one to imagine. If armed revolution doesn't work, if the legal systems and the lawmaking legislatures are bought by capital, if, that's, if that project succeeds, how do we make a better system? And there the imagination reels Oh, it can't be done. You get cynicism, you get negativity, you get giving upness, you get a kind of nihilism uh, or a pessimism that, uh, well, we just can't possibly um, make a better society. And this, despite the fact that we think we're in a democracy, we think legislatures are representative, the governments are representative, and laws change all the time. So, in other words, our inability to imagine a better set of laws or getting to a better set of laws is partly uh, we're victims of a hallucination or a hypnotism or a con game. We're failing to uh, believe in our own systems. So it's a failure of the democratic imagination. And um, so, so this is a point I'd want to make. We Say Biden-Harris wins in November, and also that there's a working majority that um, Democratic Party takes the Senate and the House. Now, at that point, you've got a political imaginary, you've got a necessary realist situation that we're in big trouble on this planet, and you've got a working majority, and you've got a Green New Deal as a plan. 
-hmm. At that point, is it really easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism? I don't think so. I think at that point you can imagine the end of capitalism. Well, I need to take a break, so, uh, but I want to pursue that particular line of thought. You're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM in Santa Cruz and California Central Coast and ksqd.org streaming on the internet. Good afternoon, you're listening to Sustainability Now on KSQD 90.7 FM and ksqd.org streaming on the internet. This is Ronnie Lipschitz and my guest today is Kim Stanley Robinson, a well-known science fiction writer and California futurist or visionary as, as some have called him. And we were just talking about transforming uh, the American political economy uh, through things like the Green New Deal. And, um, you know, I like the fact that you focus on political economy, uh, but of course, one of the features of political economy is that you're dealing with an existing material world, as well as this embedded practices that, that come along with that, right? Which is, and you alluded to that, to, to capital and, and its interests, obstructing, obstructing social change, and, and the difficulty of getting from here to there. And I mentioned in Pacific Edge, what I, what I liked was that you illustrated part of the politics of getting from here to there. I mean, the hard work, what is, there's that phrase about, you know, the hard, from someone about the hard work of, of actually doing politics. I mean, can you, you know, imagine how we might, or how that political economy might be transformed? Because of course, we have what we have to work with. That's always the issue, right? We can imagine the future, but we have to get from the existing world to there. Yeah, sure. Um, given where we are now and trying to get to a better world, I would say um, a, a very progressive political platform that included um, carbon quantitative easing. Um, so by that I mean that the central banks make up money from scratch and pay it to do good work because the central banks are always making up money just uh, from scratch and they did that in the quantitative easing of 2008 and they did it recently this spring in order to get us out of the pandemic or ease the economic pain of the pandemic. Central banks can make up in trillions of dollars without blowing money's um, credibility, uh, without causing massive inflation or deflation. So on that, we've seen the evidence. Then also a job guarantee, so that if the government, and this is sort of like a, a, the Works Project Administration of the New Deal, if the government is the employer of last resort, that everybody's got a job, if you need a job, you get a job, and the government pays a living wage, that's a game changer because then private industry would have to pay that same living wage or everybody just go for the government jobs. There's work to be done. It isn't the case that there would be no work for these people because in terms of landscape restoration and social services and uh, decarbonizing the technological base, there's actually more work to be done than there are people to do it. So full employment by way of a job guarantee carbon quantitative easing, and a very progressive tax structure that tax not just carbon, but also excessive wealth, 
So you go back to say the Republican Congress passed tax plan of 1953, where after you make what a modern equivalent of about $4 million a year, you're being taxed at a 91% rate. And that money's going to the government to pay for necessary services and provide social security as a, so that wealth would have both a, a high floor and a low ceiling. Um, and you could be wealthy, but not stupid wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, these, so tax structures, job guarantee, carbon quantitative easing, uh, um, you can, by legal means that are already being used, uh, radically change the political economy that we're in to something that's more just and more sustainable at the same time. So it's not, um, it's not rocket science. It's not utopian nonsense. It's just a progressive political program that we've got to believe in and get a working majority to back. And then we might be able to scrape our way through this century and get through the climate change era with the least amount of extinctions and the least amount of human damage. It's going to be a wicked, wicked fight. And, and it's, it's really your specialty. It's going to be a political battle. Can you convince enough people of this story to, um, and can you overwhelm the forces of resistance that are attempting to buy legislation outright in order to protect privilege. Can you do those things? Well, this is the story of our century. Yeah. Um, going back to the boom interview, and this sort of relates to what you were just talking about. You, you say in that interview that California is a terraformed space, kind of like green Mars. Uh, but these days it's increasingly difficult to launch the kind of heroic projects that transform the state. Um, but are we still engaged in terraforming? And if so, what kind? And if we were able to do what you just said, would we be engaging in terraforming as well? I think so. Um, but uh, let's unpack that a little bit. Uh, terraforming is a word for a place like Mars, yeah. where you take a planet and you give it a more Earth-like atmosphere so it's friendlier to people and you can create a biosphere that is Terran in origin but existing on some other place. Mars is relatively terraformable. Uh, the moon is not, for instance. But So to terraform California is kind of a joke, um, but humans have been altering the landscape for 50,000 years at least, and I mean massive um, alterations such that Australia is a, a terraform space. The Amazon basin is a terraform space. These um, park-like uh, meadows and forests of, of certain parts of North America were created by humans. So now what I think it means, sometimes we talk about geoengineering in order to make it clear that we're talking about tinkering with Earth's um, natural cycles to make it friendlier for humans. Well, one thing that would make it friendlier is to not have a catastrophic uh, global heating event and a mass extinction event. So decarbonizing could be called terraforming, but it's sort of a maintenance procedure rather than a radical transformation to make it different. You actually are gonna have to do terraforming type activities to keep it the same as it was you know, uh, in the Holocene. The Anthropocene, is effectively the time during which humans are doing their damnedest to save the Earth's biosphere from our own pollution and our own disastrous 
uh, side effects of our disastrous schemes to, uh, quote, conquer nature. So um, terraforming is probably a kind of a joke word for this process. Um, um, earth maintenance or stewardship or civilization itself. Um, there, in California, for instance, you can imagine trying to get rid of the suburbs and going back to neo-traditional town planning, getting away from the car. All of these things are very long-term projects indeed. But um, if you want the wild animals to coexist with us, if you want a healthy biosphere, you could imagine a 100 or a 500 year project at the end of which California once again looks different, mm -hmm. but there will still be water distribution. There will still be um, um, those aspects that we did in the in 19th and in the early 20th century. Some of those are gonna remain and we're just gonna be tinkering with them to make them viable for the long haul. Of course, there's a movement, uh, you know, to take down dams up in the Klamath Basin, right? There's an order, a project to to take down four dams to restore the salmon run. And, yeah. and in a way, you know, in a way that the project is to go back to something. Um, and a lot of people kind of imagine this, you know, idyllic par paradise. I, I, I agree, it's not going to be that. But, but the, the other thing I want to say is that I think in many ways terraforming is much more evocative than earth maintenance. You know, earth maintenance sounds like an engineering project. Um, yeah. That's just, you know, that's just branding. It's, it's that's right. Well, it's a, uh, uh, the word is um, a science fictional word. If it helps people to think what we're doing, which is altering the planet to make it friendlier for us and more sustainable over the long haul. And, and I would add friendlier for all the living creatures so that we all uh, coexist on this planet without a mass extinction event, then call it terraforming. But in fact, it's a kind of an emergency rescue operation that might last as much as a century or two. Yeah. And if we don't succeed at it, we're screwed. So it's sort of the necessary work, whatever you call it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I have read arguments in the past that a lot of the meta-engineering that took place between you know, 1950 and 1990 came about as a result of men having been influenced by science fiction and shows such as Star Trek. Um, and you know, it seems to me this can explain our continuing faith in the technological deus ex machina, which I think exists amongst our generation. Do you think that science fiction continues to have that kind of influence? If it exists, let me put it that way. Yeah, um, yes. Science fiction is an enterprise of imagining possible futures. And every culture that has a vibrant science fiction in, in both literature and movies is expressing visions of its culture's um, future success and failure all possibilities are modeled in science fiction. So the more uh, vibrant a culture of science fiction is, the better it understands where it is in history and where it could be going for both good and ill. So I think that's still happening. Um, it's getting harder because the future is so obviously a science fiction story already. No matter what we do, we're gonna be into something different. Things aren't going to be like now. And it's that feeling that causes science fiction to be written in the first place. So that will not go away. That even gets accelerated to the point where um, 
everything becomes science fiction. And in, and in that sense, um, it gets a little bit worrisome because people are thinking anything's possible. Um, once we get set on certain trajectories, if we do enough damage to the biosphere, we've radically reduced our options. So yeah, it's a, it's a tool of cognitive mapping, as uh, Jameson calls it. You want to understand where you are in the world, on the planet, and in human history. And the better cognitive mapping you have, you have orientation, you have a set of goals, you have a sense of, I want to go in the good direction rather than the bad direction. It's all still of use. Um, you know, much science fiction takes place, or much in the past, in a white man's universe which othered everything that wasn't white or human. I mean, there's that whole sort of theme about, right, the alien. Um, and do you think science fiction has changed in terms of addressing uh, what Ruth Wilkerson calls the American caste system, you know, structural racism? Well, I should hope so. I think I see the signs of it. Um, as an as a aging white male, I'm maybe not the right person to uh, celebrate the accomplishments of science fiction in this regard, because it would be interesting to see what um, people in the community of color would say about science fiction's role. But I'll say this, what I saw as a young science fiction reader was a, a literature dominated by Ursula Le Guin, Joanna Russ, and James Tiptree Jr., who was Alice Sheldon. Yeah. And so the feminist moment in the science fiction of the 1970s was a very uh, salutary slap in the face to an ordinary young American male. And I, it changed me. So I was changed by science fiction and became a kind of um, loyal soldier in the feminist movement as a, uh, as a man again i try to follow my sisters and uh, their suggestions and their lead on this so as not to once again appropriate someone else's movement but i think science fiction did a great job of changing with the times of expressing the 60s and the 70s and of being a feminist force and changing people's thinking and now, these days, I guess I would hope what I'm seeing is a kind of cultural revolution where people of color are able to express in science fiction futures that represent them better. And um, it seems to me that whether the community and the field and the world, the nation, accepts them as much as they ought to be, nevertheless, science fiction is a great tool. Or it's a great tool to do these kind of mental work. Of, of changing the world. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 it made an impact on me in terms of feminism. And I would hope in terms of uh, questions of race and color and privilege and class. So um, that's all I can say is that I think of it as a tool of huge power and mm -hmm. I see people wielding it and I, I just cheer them on. Okay, well, I need to take a break. Um, you're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM on your radio dial and ksqd.org streaming on the internet. Hi, you're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guest today is Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, science fiction writer and California futurist. Uh, and we've just been talking about about basically about race and science fiction, but uh, it, we only have about 10 minutes left. So I wanted to shift to your forthcoming book, Ministry for the Future. 
um, which imagines an international organization created in 2025 that takes on the task of dealing with all the problems industrialization, capitalism, and individualism have created. But, you know, I think about the fact that after 30 years, the annual meetings of the Convention on Climate Change have produced almost nothing. So why do you think your ministry could do differently? Maybe you can say a little bit more about the book as well. Sure. Uh, well, um, I would uh, contest the idea that these meetings have done almost nothing because we are in a changed discursive space. Mm -hmm. um, we are, uh, civilization has become aware that this is the primary problem and threat of our century. That wasn't true 20 years ago. I was there uh, fighting the fight 20 years ago, and I can tell you it's exceedingly different now. Also, the Paris Agreement is an agreement of world historical importance. Now, whether it goes the way of the League of Nations or whether it goes to some kind of a organizing structure for a, a de facto world government, or at least a coordinating system for the nation state system to get their act together and deal with climate change is yet to be determined by what we do now. But the Paris Agreement is really significant. Every nation signed on, every nation set targets for themselves. The targets were a little soft and there's no sheriff. And a lot of nations were missing their target till the pandemic came along. So it's not perfect. It's a work in progress. But if I had written the Paris Agreement as an element in a story in the year even 2000, everybody would have laughed, said it's another Robinson um, utopian science fiction idea. I mean, similar to my Mars books, my, my Green Earth trilogy, et cetera, et cetera. But it really did happen in 2015, which is not that much later than when it would have been completely inconceivable. So the discursive battle has been not won, but it's been engaged in and made huge progress. And now we got to actually act on what we know we have to do. That will be harder. But um, the more we know the necessity, the better our chances are of collecting that working political majority and doing it. You know, I actually recall back in 1989 uh, going to a conference and talking to people about something very much like the Ministry of the Future. I think we called it the World Environment Organization, right? It wasn't the same mm. as the UN Environmental Program, but basically, uh, you know, something that would have the capacity to, to do, um, you know, to, to do this kind of, of, of action, to take this kind of action. Of course, you know, very little came of it. Um, yeah, and, and which is, I suppose, unfortunate. Um, well, in retrospect, I, you 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 remind me to say a little bit more about my book's premise. This yeah. is not yeah. something. This is not something that is ever going to happen in Santa Cruz. Uh, Santa Cruz has been my beach town for these last forty years, so I know Santa Cruz pretty damn well, and I have relatives living there, and say hi to them if they're listening to uh, my brothers and brother-in-law and nephews. Um, but what I'd say is. The, the rise in global average temperature that we've already uh, experienced, uh, which is about half a degree Celsius, and we're headed for more, we are dangerously close to creating what people call a wet bulb 35 temperature. And that's simply a combination of heat and humidity that will kill human beings that aren't in an air-conditioned space. Mm -hmm. We've already hit it a couple of times um, you know, in predictable places in India, 
um, in Africa, but also in near Chicago, American Southwest. Like I say, not going to happen in Santa Cruz because of the, the Pacific Ocean, so cold sitting right offshore. But there are many places on this earth where you get that combination of heat and humidity and there will be mass death. And at that point, we're going to get serious about doing what the Paris Agreement wants us to do. And that point is when my ministry for the future gets instituted as a arm of the Paris Agreement, as a kind of an enforcement wing or a mission impossible wing or what have you. The novel goes into some detail about what can the ministry of the future really do. And it goes on from there. Um, it, it strikes me though, that that's a project that maybe needs to be begin as a, <clears throat> you know, out of popular activism. Uh, and if we rely on governments to establish a ministry for the future, we're going to be waiting a long time. Now I say that as, you know, a, an ex-professor, professor emeritus of, of international politics. Um, no, I take, I take your point, and there's something very important that you're pointing out there. And I um, recently, in a conversation with Jameson, I had a, he made an interesting reversal in that the left, uh, progressive movements trying to make a better world, have often relied on a kind of vanguardism almost a Leninism of, yeah. okay, there's intellectuals, there's leaders, there's governments, and then the people are led by that. And he reversed that. He said, um, that that's the notion that the leadership is involved with strategy and then the general populace is involved with tactics. He said, it's always the reverse. It's always the reverse. And this is maybe to suggest a kind of a Maoism, but more importantly, the general populace is in charge of strategy, and then their leadership, their intelligentsia, figures out the tactics to implement that strategy. Mm-hmm. So the Ministry for the Future could not succeed if it were trying to do stuff that the general population didn't want. But if the general population wants a better world and a, and a, and a world that is not consumed by climate change, if the general population is serious about more justice, and more sustainability in their civilization, then what they do is they say to their governmental organizations or their uh, uh, bureaucratic uh, institutions like a ministry, uh, get this done. And then the ministry has to deal with the tactics of it. So yeah, the, the, there's a general population that has to demand that we have a decent future. And then we have to rely on our experts and our expertise and our academics and our bureaucrats to figure out the ways to make it happen. And our legislatures, because they're crucial. And that's bad because basically legislatures, um, politicians are often lawyers without an idea in their head. So the ideas have to come from somewhere else and then they will enact them. So again, strategy from the people, tactics from um, from the political element. Well, that's, that's probably a, a good point to, uh, to, to end this uh, interview because we're running out of time. Uh, just la- one last question. Have, have any of your books been turned into films or do you think that they're filmable? Uh, well, the, none of them have been. There's always uh, options on um, the Mars Trilogy and often one or two of my other books. Uh, options are just options. Um, the Mars Trilogy's kind of weirdly unfilmable. I have other novels that are probably much more normal, but of course now we have TV series that can go on for years and years. Uh, Who knows? 
I'm a book person myself. I mm. enjoy movies as a, I mean, I could list for you 300 books that I love before I come to the first movie that means as much to me as those 300 books. Okay. So for me, it's like a way of dispersing the books more widely. Sure, would be great, but I don't care. <laughs> okay, well, listen, Stan, I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Sustainability Now. And Pleasure. Thanks, Ronnie. Okay. And thanks, and thanks, by the way, for your Ecotopia celebration a few years back. I totally enjoyed that. Ecotopia is, is a very worthy utopian Californian novel. Even though Ecotopia emerging is a, is a ridiculous, um, the, the core text of Ecotopia is always worth reading, and you did a good job there. Thank so you. thanks for that. Yeah. yeah. On the next Sustainability Now, Join me and my guest, Santa Cruz architect Mark Premack, to talk about accessory dwelling units as one strategy for bringing affordable housing to the city and county. We'll also be reflecting on Santa Cruz past, present, and future. That's Sunday, September 6, 5 to 6 p.m., right here on KSQD 90.7 FM and ksqd.org on the internet. As a reminder, for those of you who get up with the sun, shows from the 5 to 6 p.m. Sunday slot are rebroadcast the following Tuesday mornings from 6 to 7 a.m. If you'd like to listen to previous shows, you can find them at ksqd.org backslash sustainability now and at the website sustainablesystemsfoundation.org. Thanks to Emily Dunham for her sterling engineering and everyone else at the station who makes this show possible. And so until the next every other Sunday, sustainability now. Hey.